You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command, where my voice might not be all there, but I guess my brain hopefully is still all there because there is a lot of truth telling to divulge. There's a lot of facts, details passion and commitment that we bring uh, to the table that unfortunately many of our colleagues in this business are still stuck on Peter Strzok and Lisa um, Page and uh, Christopher Steele while we lose our sovereignty, our security, our society. Um, You know, today is a really good day to have a co-host because I know you don't want to hear my frog voice all day. My nose is all stuffed up, this cold that just won't go away. We have a very special guest today. Um, first off, it's just it's it's Tuesday, June fourth. As we wait for this momentous seventy fifth anniversary of D Day of Normandy, Operation Overlord, Omaha Beach on Thursday. Today, the fourth happens to be the seventy seventh anniversary of the Battle of Midway, where it, it was probably the single most pivotal day in the Western theater. Our, our military did not have the qualitative edge. Certainly, the Navy didn't uh, that it has today. It was half the size of the Japanese naval forces. We sunk four of their aircraft carriers. Over 230 of their planes were shot down that day. Decisive victory because we didn't have transgender safe spaces in the military. We didn't have generals who are politicians. We We had a nation with a mission that understood the veracity of its values, the veracity of its purpose, the meaning of its own sovereignty, and to defend its prerogatives overseas when they mattered. And that battle led to the freeing of, of the world, really. Um, both that in conjunction with what we celebrate this week, 75th anniversary of D-Day. Sadly, you contrast that today to a country where we do not even maintain the integrity of our own continental landmass. Forget about Hawaii. Uh, with the cartels running loose, going up and down our border every day, operational control of both sides, operationally and really politically, of our border. We sit and do nothing. We refuse to even use our insanely modern military with unbelievable technological capabilities that we didn't have back then. We don't use them except when it's inappropriate and random. We also spoke about yesterday the fact that somehow the forgotten citizen doesn't matter. Our government will be very transparent, very upfront, very dedicated to tackling the needs and desires of foreign nationals. But there is no voice for the American sovereign, particularly law enforcement, federal or local, that want to uphold their laws. Today, we're going to have on a forgotten federal law enforcement agent. Today, we're going to talk about what I call the Mexico Benghazi. Probably less than one hundredth of one percent of this country has ever heard of the murder on Highway 57 in Mexico, where two ICE agents in on February 15th, 2011, we, we did commemorate this in February the um, eighth anniversary of it this year. But two ICE agents were dispatched on a dubious task to pick up uh, supplies and and, um, certain materials in Monterey from Mexico City where they had to travel on a known route controlled by the Zetas cartel. They're traveling in an armored vehicle and Zetas cartel members push them aside on the road like you see in the in the narco movies and you know what we're going to hear from the man at the scene the exact details but basically a one man Jaime Zapata was killed and uh his partner 
Victor Avila was severely injured, but he wound up living and surviving. And no questions were ever asked about the incident, the fact that they got the guns, the cartels that is from Fast and Furious operation was very much tied into it. No questions were asked about why are we not changing our attitude and mentality towards the cartels? Um, and this agent, Victor Avila, was left out to dry. We, we've talked about a lot. You have a lot of heroes of politically correct encounters or politically correct crimes. But then you have heroes of crimes that aren't politically correct. And, you know, we've had victims of illegal aliens on the show before where the media won't talk to them. No one will tell their story. It, it's very sad that very few people know of him, but I, I, I committed myself to being that voice. And today it's a true honor to bring on Victor Avila, that surviving agent from that, what I call Mexican Benghazi incident in 2011. He's going to recount the story, and therefore you don't have to hear my voice anymore, hopefully for the most part of this show. Victor, it is a true honor to bring you on to this show, which I know will not be the last time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on and, and sharing my story, Dan. I appreciate the time. Sure. So rather than me just you know spilling everything in the intro, why, why don't you just go straight into it, just to give the audience a sense of the critical details because i mean even aside from the political ramifications just the details are crazy i mean it's it's like a movie um what you went through that you think are very important especially that will have policy punchlines so just take it from here and i'm just going to shut up and uh you know guide the discussion Uh, yes of course that the uh the best way i can kind of start setting it up is to kind of uh just kind of let the the audience know that um, kind of the setting of Mexico and how it was. Mexico City ICE office at the U.S. Embassy was the busiest office in the world at that time. And I'm talking between 2009 and 2011, which is also the height of the violence in Mexico. We were having uh, murders, for example, in Ciudad Juarez, about three to 400 a month. And, um, and so the cartels, especially the Zetas cartels, were really taking over large territories of, um, of Mexico. Um, we, uh, I was heavily involved and very, very busy and the busiest time in my career while I was assigned there. I had arrived in country as a diplomat, as an accredited diplomat in 2009 with my family. And uh, you fast forward uh, with tremendous amount of work, uh, almost at work all the time, hardly ever at home. Some months, I think I was home days. But, you know, uh, the beginning of 2011, entering the, the, the new year, um, I had just continued the traveling uh, as soon as the year started. And uh, as a matter of fact, I had been uh, on another assignment uh, on a special interest alien investigation that had taken me to Denver, then to through Arizona. And I arrived back in, in Mexico on Sunday, uh, two days. The shooting happened on a Tuesday on February 15th and the Sunday before I actually, it was Monday morning about 1 AM when I showed up back home and went to work Monday morning around 9 AM, which was a Valentine's day, uh, expecting to be in the office all week to complete all the paperwork and my administrative duties that I had is everybody knows that everything that an agent does has to be, you know, documented somewhere. So I, I was planning on doing that and I had my to-do list for that week. But right about noontime, uh, a coworker of mine gives me a heads up and tells me, listen, it looks like they're, they're going to send you to Monterey. And I'm not a, I'm not a shy person. I kind of uh, kind of flipped my top and said, what, what's going on? Why, why me? I just I haven't been in here for a week. I was work. So I immediately challenged the assignment just um, just with my coworker that first. And, um, and then sure enough, after lunch in Mexico, which is around two o'clock, came back to the office around three o'clock and my supervisor called me in and officially gave me the, uh, the assignment saying, uh, you're going to take, uh, the TD wire, which, uh, an agent that is assigned temporarily. In this case, it was special agent Jaime Zapata, which I had never met before. He had been in the country, uh, I think a little over a week. Um, and I hadn't, obviously I wasn't there. I hadn't seen him. He says, he's going to accompany you to get some equipment from our counterparts, ICE agents that are stationed out of the Monterey consulate, U.S. consulate, and you're going to bring the equipment. 
and uh, um, I challenged it. Uh, I called the assistant attache in Monterey, the ICE assistant attache, and tell them what's going on. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this by road? There had been an alert by the U.S. ambassador uh, about three weeks prior, a second alert from one that was issued six months prior. But the one that, that was issued three three weeks before this day specifically prohibited U.S. personnel from driving on Highway 57, which Highway 57 is the main authority to the state, to Monterey, and then to the Texas border. I had driven on that highway many times, very familiar with it. So the uh, the uh, the cartels, specifically the Zetas cartel, had uh, really taken over that territory from Monterey all the way to a state by the name of San Luis Potosí. And we knew that. But the intelligence was, you know, we get the intelligence every day. And the assistant attache said the same thing. He used the word scrimmages. He said, listen, the, the federal government, the federal police in Mexico and military are having firefights with the cartel on Highway 57. Uh, my supervisors ignored that. Um, they ignored the the alert from the State Department prohibiting U.S. personnel from driving there either for business reasons. If, in fact, you had to be on that road, you did written consent from the ambassador, which my office never obtained that from the, uh, from the ambassador's office through what they call the Regional Security Office, the RSO. So I challenge it. I, I tell my supervisor, you know, go up the chain of command to the deputy attache. He pulls him out of the office and, and tells him, listen, you know, we're talking to the assistant attache in Monterey. We're hearing all this stuff is going on. Why don't we send this equipment via a diplomatic pouch, which is a truck that's protected by diplomatic immunity, or we could fly it through the air. There's many other options to get this equipment into Mexico City. By the way, this equipment was uh, tracking devices, uh, surveillance equipment that was to be used both by the federal government for a big operation. And I think some of it was going to be kept at our ICE office as well. And the deputy attache comes out and says, uh, and I could almost quote him eight years later, saying he was not aware of any security issues in Mexico. And he needed that equipment by close of business day tomorrow, meaning this was Monday, meaning Tuesday. He turned around and shut the door. And my supervisor and I looked at each other and, you know, we were ordered and I was ordered. And at that point, um, you know, couldn't do much about it. So I then get on the phone with the assistant attache in Monterey and start making arrangements as to where to meet on Highway 57. So the drive from Mexico City to to where we wanted to meet, kind of like a middle point, was about a five, five and a half hour drive one way for us. And we kind of started kidding around as to where to where to do the exchange. Um, that afternoon, mo- Monday, that afternoon, I um, I met Jaime Zapata. Uh, I, I had uh, clear uh, cell phones. I had a box full of cell phones that were clean. I offered him one, but he had a radio phone that we already used. Uh, he was coming out of the uh, Laredo office, so he already had the Nextel radios that we that we used on a daily basis. So we exchanged the code. And I asked them to be at my apartment in Mexico City, which is the northern part of the city, at 6.30 in the morning so we could drive out. Uh, another agent offered to take them to my apartment, which he did. And uh, needless to say, that was the end of my Valentine's Day. I stayed in the office and uh, to work late. Uh, but here comes Tuesday morning, 6.30 a.m., uh, Jaime shows up right on time and we get on and I'm driving. It's uh, I'm in my 2009 Chevy Suburban. It's uh, an armored, uh, heavily armored vehicle. It weighs about about six tons, about 11,000 pounds. It's not your usual vehicle that you drive every day. And um, we head off and we start driving. I'm, I'm driving. Um, we're driving north on Highway 57. Um, very, very communicative with a uh, very talkative with Jaime. Uh, we hit it off. off. Um, we talked like if we knew each other for years. Mm. He reminded me a lot of myself as a border agent, uh, a hardworking agent. Uh, I remember him getting a phone call from one of the ports of entries of, uh, of a seizure that was his. And I kind of just kind of reminded me like, oh, this guy is uh, he's out there tackling and trying to make a difference. And uh, we talked about him possibly wanting to come as a permanent agent to Mexico. He also had that aspiration and that ambition to kind of move up in his career. 
Um, I welcomed that. I, um, I kind of in, in, initially assumed that he spoke Spanish, but he did speak a little Spanish, but um, not that much. And I told huh. him, you would have to brush up on your Spanish. Uh, <laughs> it made a difference in my career um, in, in Mexico City because, you know, uh, because of the language. And so it really made my job a lot easier, easier in, uh, in Mexico City and the, the whole country. But um, so here we are. The, the first stop is at a at a um, at a side store just to gas up. These, these suburbans are, are gas guzzlers and we gas up. It's still early in the morning. I would say about maybe eight or nine. We gas up. Um, I, I do tell Jaime, uh, I do have um, uh, my two issued weapons. I had two handguns in my backpack that were placed in the back floorboard of the back seat. Like right, if you would reach as a driver right behind you, they were placed in there. And, um, and so we head off. I'm still driving. Eventually, we make contact with our counterparts, another ICE agent in another suburban. And ironically, it was at kilometer marker 100. This is uh, now about 1130 in the morning. We exchange this equipment. This equipment is, there are big boxes, small boxes, some suitcases in there. And it barely fit in the back of the Suburban. We lowered not only the third row seats, but also the second row seats. And these Suburbans are equipped with an additional door in the back. If you've never seen an armored vehicle, it has your, your, your traditional hatchback that raises up. But once you raise that hatch, hatchback, there is an additional door that opens traditionally, you know, uh, right to left or left to right uh, and opens like a traditional, traditional door. It has an armored window in there. And we packed all the boxes all up and up into the back of the front passenger seat and driver's seat. It didn't take us but five minutes. We used that restroom in the uh, restaurant that was there. And um, I tell Jaime, you know, you want to grab something to eat? They could, the restaurant was just barely opening. He said, no, I saw a subway on the over. I like to, you know, he was very surprised that there was a subway in Mexico. And I said, no, we could, we could stop at the subway on the way back. And um, I'm still driving. Now we're heading south back to Mexico City. And we, um, we encounter a federal police officer. A, he's on the median in a marked police unit. He's out of his unit wearing a, a full police uniform, but he has a long gun on him. He has it around his neck and he's holding it kind of in a three-quarter position. He's not pointing it at the traffic. He's just kind of, uh, kind of scanning the traffic and all the traffic is kind of slowing down. It's not a checkpoint. He's not pulling anybody over. And it was a very, very eerie feeling. Uh, we passed by him. I look at him. He looks at us. And I tell Jaime, what the heck was that? I use a little bit of a stronger language than that. So, so you, and, you think that's a cartel guy? So I think I can't prove that. I just think, uh, believe it or not, that's one of the scariest moments that I've ever been in Mexico. And I've been through many, many checkpoints, legal and I knew how to navigate through them. This guy was just a lone, lone police officer right there. And we passed him at a slow rate of speed. And, and I looked over to Jaime and I said, what the heck is this guy doing there, man? And he just, uh, he scares me. And I told Jaime, are you scared? And he says, yeah. I said, you know what? Let's just can't continue driving. So we kind of forgot about him. We, we went on our way. We got to the subway uh, this time at 1.30 p.m. We ate lunch. It was a very peaceful day on February 15th. Uh, beautiful weather. I, I mentioned to Jaime, one of the perks of being there is the, the weather is so nice. It's like San Diego weather, I refer to it. And so um, we were there for about 30 minutes. It's about 2 o'clock. We're walking back to the suburban. I told Jaime the keys, and I said, it's your, it's your turn to, to drive. And I, I explained to him it's, uh, it's kind of better to kind of – he had never driven an armored vehicle before. So – the best way to do it is kind of an open road, get used to the weight of the vehicle, the braking distance, the acceleration and all that, uh, rather than in Mexico City, as you can imagine, with the traffic there. And I told them once we start heading into the city, which would be rush hour in Mexico City, rush hour is between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., uh, I would take over. We would pull over and I would take over because it's just the, the, uh, the, the traffic, as you can imagine, just horrific there. And I had a lot of work to do. I was uh, planning a human trafficking conference. Uh, I had all this other stuff on my plate. I was working off my BlackBerry back then. 
And so I took advantage uh, as a passenger to start doing some of that while Jaime was driving. Well, right about maybe just 15 minutes into the drive, Jaime alerts me and tells me, um, hey, look at that SUV that had passed us. This is a four-lane highway, uh, Highway 57, two lanes going south, two lanes going north. We're going south. We're on the far right lane. And, you know, I noticed the, the, the SUVs pass us at a high rate of speed. We're traveling about 70, 72 miles an hour. And the second SUV that passes by, Jaime tells me, it looks like that guy, that SUV has a, there's a long gun sticking out of the back seat. And I look up and sure enough, you could see the rifle or a long gun in the middle of the seat and kind of occupied by several people in there and they pass us. I mean, they're, they're going 90 plus miles an hour. And I just tell Jaime, just, just let him go. Just let it be, let him drive off. And we continue driving, but within within seconds and not even a minute, we were up on them. They had slowed down drastically that forced Jaime to, to, to slow down a lot. I'm talking about to 25, 30 miles an hour. And all of a sudden the, there's an SUV in front of us. And then there's one right next to us. And they start the, the SUV right next to us, which is right next to Jaime is really pushing on and kind of pulling their SUV towards our SUV to try to, uh, crash it. Jaime, you know, pulls the SUV to the right and tries to avoid the collision. We're mirror to mirror and they're lowers, they're, they're, they lower their windows and AK-47s come out and they're yelling. Um, at this time, we're rolling down maybe 15 miles, 10 miles an hour and they're yelling at the top of the lungs to pull over, pull over, pull over and stop. And I tell Jaime, go, 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 go. And Jaime tries to avoid them, accelerates and tries to navigate to the first SUV that's blocking us. He does initially and then they come right back on us. And now the second time they are really what they, what we get uh, taught to do is uh, a rolling roadblock. And they start slowing down drastically to push it to the right shoulder. And we do, and uh, Jaime pulls the SUV to the, to the right shoulder. There's a big kind of a gravelly area that we pull over to. And one SUV is blocking us in the front and the other one is right next to us. And then we pull over and about eight to 10 of them jump out from the, the front of the SUV, the, fr- the one in front of us. And they now, kind now of surround. Just, just freeze frame there. Were, were there other cars on the road? Yeah, there were other cars, like regular traffic, but very, very light traffic. Very light traffic, um, not heavy traffic at all. It's just kind of like a freeway. And no um, one stopped? And it, no, no, no one stopped. Uh, no, no one stopped. And um, at that at that point, I didn't even notice the traffic anymore um, until. And I'll tell you a little bit after I continue the story. I started noticing the traffic after that. But at that point, you know, all these guys do like a semicircle. Yep. Uh, surround the, the the suburban. Now, now just and, as a baseline, just so people understand. So normally they think, all right, so your goose is cooked at that point. But this is an armored vehicle designed to sustain you know, direct hits, at least light arms, um, if not bombs yeah. and, and RPG fire. So theoretically, they fire into, you know, or at the vehicle, you know, you guys could wait that out theoretically. But, but yeah. uh, you know, there was a wrinkle that happened. Yes. And so uh, when we pulled over, Jaime places uh, the Suburban in park. When he plays, the, and it has a traditional, you know, gear level attached to the to the to the steering column, and he pushes it up and places it in park, and it unlocks the doors. One of the shooters immediately comes to Jaime's door and opens the door wide open, and Jaime, within half a second, grabs the handle. Now these SUVs are equipped with a kind of industrial handle; they don't have a traditional car handle because the door's so heavy. He grabs that handle and shuts the door right back. And we started hitting the lock buttons on the, on the door. Um, and we didn't know that when, when we hit the lock buttons, we inadvertently also hit the lower window button and lowered my window on my side uh, a couple of inches. Mm. And we didn't know that. We were still focused on the guy that opened the door. And he's yelling in Spanish this whole time, get out, get out, get out of the open the door, get out there, yanking at, at the door handles. Now the vehicle's locked. And then he shoots, he has a handgun. He shoots down by the door front tire area uh, of Hymas side. And it t- kind of took a, uh, like a second to kind of, uh, kind of uh, notice that what's going on. I, I actually 
turned on Jaime and and I just said, did he freaking, did he just freaking shoot at the, at the car? And, you know, kind of in disbelief of what's going on at that point. Before you know it, I, I'm yelling at them. We have our hands clearly up by the front windshield and I'm yelling at them. Listen, we're Americans. We are not who you think we are. We are uh, U.S. Embassy employees. We are U.S. diplomats. This vehicle is a diplomatic vehicle. Look at the plates, which the vehicle is equipped with diplomatic plates. Uh, they're very, very unique. Uh, I was yelling that over and over and over and over and over at the top of my lungs. And uh, I said, let me give me a chance to uh, identify myself. My my diplomatic passport was in the backpack. Now, my backpack had been caught underneath the seats when we lowered the uh, the seats. My backpack was down there, and but there was never a chance to get it. There was never a chance to get to my weapons. I never brandished a weapon. They didn't know I had weapons. So I want to make that very clear. Um, the whole time we were hands up, and I'm yelling at them and yelling at them before you knew it two of the shooters came to my window and inserted a AK-47 and a handgun right by my head. And I immediately pushed back as much as I could against the, you know, the side of the car, right by the passenger side, just, I kind of pushed my shoulder up against, and I lifted the button to raise the window and it raised the armored window and caught the barrels of the two guns. So he and already had his gun in up. there at that moment when you realized. Yes, there was one the, there's two barrels inside, yes. And I raised the window and it caught the barrels. They started wiggling their guns to get the barrels to point down. And then without notice, they opened fire. And, um, you know, as soon as they opened fire, my, my hearing goes and I look at Jaime, I see him get hit on his side of, the, uh, of his torso on his right side with the handgun. And he yells, I'm hit, I'm hit. And I tell him, go, 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 go. I still have my, somehow I'm trying to raise the window and they stop firing. I grab the, the handgun. I start wiggling it with my hand and I burned up, you know, my, my left hand. Left oh, wow. Yeah. That, that's going to be hot. It's super hot. And I'm trying to wiggle it. And eventually I raise the window and it goes all the way up and they just start spraying, you know, with bullets on my side. And I tell Jaime, go, 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 go. And by this time, Jaime had also been hit in his left leg and was bleeding profusely and was already immediately losing consciousness. And um, he had his foot on the, on the gas. I pressed down on his leg on the gas to go. And I slammed that gear shift down the drive. And we crashed this, the SUV that, that was blocking us in front of us. And then try to get back on Highway 57, but the vehicle just rolled across the the two lanes into the median. Mm -hmm. I get the steering wheel to try to get it back on Highway 57, and that's the way it, it ended up. You would you can see pictures online of how the suburban ended up. So so first frame I, there, just just at that moment. So um, you were also hit, right? I mean, yeah. So even though they were, you know, he was more vulnerable because you were right over there and you were kind of pressed up against it, but you, you were hit several times as well, but you didn't realize it yet. Didn't realize it. I had been hit uh, twice in my leg and once in my chest and didn't even, didn't, didn't know. I didn't know I had been hit. I, I was uh, trying to, to help Jaime. I was very, um, you know, kind of uh, aggressive with him and his leg. And it was just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't control the bleeding. And I was trying to keep him conscious at that time. At that point, he was uh, unconscious, kind of leaning back. And uh, I'm trying to look for my phones to try to call for help. When on one of the SUVs, I see it pass on my right side, and I'm thinking they're leaving, but they actually do a U-turn. They come back. They the park median. right in front, right on the median. They get on the median, park hood to hood. Two shooters come out with AK-47s. And they look at me and I look at them and they just open fire on the field. And at that point I kind of just froze and, you know, the windshield was, was now protecting us. And they, um, they saw, they, they, I don't know how many rounds they shot there. And then they ran back into the SUV and took off. And then I kind of realized like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. 
and um, yelling so, so at So just, just a I moment did. there. I, that's kind of cool in and of itself. I mean, I didn't realize how resilient they are. So you're saying you only got hit from that moment where the window was open, but from all the bullets they sprayed when the windows were closed, nothing hit you. No, but some some did come in. A lot of people uh, think that no other bullets came in. Many other bullets came in through uh, a lot of bullet, bullets ended up in the equipment, in the boxes, in the back of our seats. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, through crevices and uh, the uh, none that I know of through the actual window, but some through the door, some through the back door. So a lot of rounds did come into the Suburban uh, from the outside. Um, and either I have, uh, when I do my presentation, I have photographs of showing all that where the, I mean, there was, there was bullets from the engine, from under the tire wells, you name it. it. It was over 90 rounds that they shot at us. And, uh, uh, I remember getting my, my Nextel radio phone and it wasn't working. It had no service. I threw it on the floorboard and I picked up my Blackberry. I called the, uh, the U S embassy, uh, dispatch, which is where the Marines answer. And uh, there's a recorded call. Some people can find it online. And I call them and, you know, I yell at them saying, you know, this is Victor Avila. We've been shot. We've been shot. Um, please call my supervisor, uh, Jerry Miles, and, and let him know uh, where uh, Jaime is, uh, is down. And, and it's just a, a chaotic phone call. It's about a 20-second phone call before the operator kind of realizes and just transfers me over to the regional security office. Then the regional security office, the, the secretary, the receptionist answers the phone and I'm yelling at the top of my lungs that we've been shot and, and been attacked. And uh, she kind of drops the phone and runs down the ha- hallway. My wife was working there. She was about five feet away when she heard uh, her say that Victor Avila had been shot. My wife comes out to the hallway and says, what, what did you just say? And it's an important point I say that is uh, because my wife, when she showed up to work that morning, they asked her just, hey, how's Victor doing? And she's like, oh, he's uh, he's on his way to Monterey. And the regional security office is like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no one's supposed to be on that road and no one has notified anyone here. What the heck is he doing on there? Your wife and also worked wife, for ICE? No, she, she was a contractor. Um, uh, she was a contractor that that was working and doing background investigations for the for the State Department. Uh-huh. Um, so they they uh, allowed her to do that, and so she just happened to be there present at the time. And uh, you know, so they they got her. She became very distraught, and they took her away. And then the regional security officer, the diplomatic security special agent, gets on the phone. A friend of mine, and eventually an ICE agent gets on the line. Um, the whole time, um, I'm talking to Jaime, yelling at him, and they're telling me, uh, one of my ICE uh, co-workers, who was also a paramedic in the, in the fire department before he became an agent, says he's the first one to alert me to, to tell me to check myself. And that's when I realized that I looked down, and sure enough, my left leg is like, what the heck? And yeah, I tell him, yes, I've been shot in my leg. I didn't know that I had been shot in my lower leg until I got to the hospital. But then I realized my chest, my chest wall on my right side was just bleeding the whole chest down to my jeans. And he's like, take your belt off and cinch it as uh, on your leg as high as possible as you can. I did that. And, um, this whole time I was just on the phone with them trying to tell them where I was. I didn't know exactly where I was on highway 57. I knew we had passed the town of San Luis Potosí, but it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, eventually I got on the phone with uh, a, a counterpart of a friend of mine from the federal police, the guy that headed our vetted unit. I called him at the federal police headquarters. I never called him on his office phone. That day I just dialed his office phone number. He answered, and uh, he's the one that dispatched the helicopter uh, to rescue us, but that took a long time to get there. And so uh, during that time, um, Jaime had become unresponsive. I'm on the phone trying to get them details. I eventually I get on the phone with the helicopter pilot to try to tell him where I'm at. During this whole time, all of a sudden I see what appears to be like an ambulance on the right side of the shoulder uh, pull over and one guy gets out. And he runs across Highway 57 to the Suburban, 
And he's like, open the door, open the door. And uh, at that point, I had already grabbed my, at that point, I had already grabbed my guns. I had one in my waistband and one in my hand. And I was, it was very, the, um, it's kind of hard to describe, but so, so, so let, let me my- let me just interrupt for a minute. I just want to frame this sure. for for people. So, imagine going through such a tragedy. You're you're you know you're you're a special agent, let's say FBI agent in in America, and your partner's right. hit. Um, all right, well, it's America. You know what America is. You know what police are. You know what um first responders look like. Uh, but this is Mexico, and the same way you could have random cartel guys roving on the highway to attack you in the first place. You don't know what pulls up as a uh, rescue worker is indeed a rescue worker. So that was your concern. That's a great, great point, Dan. And um, and, and I'll tell you exactly why why I didn't open that door. And but I want to add something that I forgot. There, there was a GPS tracker installed in the in the suburban. It hadn't been working for months. I flipped that switch, and it didn't send the signal to DC until about eight hours later. So that didn't work. There was a lot of equipment failure in the suburban. They had a PA system inside, and it didn't work. Um, things that that we had been asking for a long time to have it repaired on the suburban, but it just wasn't functional. You, you um, always traveled in the suburban. Yes, for personal, and they wanted our family in there. They wanted us always to be in the suburban, and it, it wasn't it wasn't the ideal vehicle to have in Mexico City because of the size of vehicle. I mean, we were going through breaks once a month, maybe once every month and a half, because it's very hilly over there. And we were trying to struggle to get money to re- get our brakes re- re- uh, repaired or replaced. Uh, the back door latch didn't close correctly. The siren had given out. The GPS signal tracker didn't work. The PA system didn't work. All these things that started accumulating with Suburbans, they're very expensive vehicles and very, very good as far as the armor, but not uh, conducive to driving every day in Mexico City, and especially we didn't have. There was no plan to have them uh, serviced adequately, so that's the whole issue with the suburbans. But uh, going back to the story, he here this guy shows up, and he's telling me I have him flanked with my handgun, and I was explaining it's very hard to see out of the window because it had been shot, and the glass when armored vehicle glass is shot up kind of looks like white snow from the inside, so I had very limited vision on my right side. And he's telling me to open the door, and I'm not. And he doesn't really challenge it that much. He turns around, runs back, and leaves. Well, I didn't find out until the trial in D.C. a couple of years ago that that was the Zeta's ambulance guy. (laughs) They have their own ambulance and their own rescue when they're involved in shootouts in Mexico. That's how highly sophisticated and unorganized they are. And... um, so I'm glad I didn't open the door for him. And then uh, a few minutes later, uh, what appeared to be a state police officer, this guy's wearing like uh, jeans and a polo shirt with uh, the badge on his shirt is one of those patches. And he comes across from the left side. I could see him come out clearly. I'm flanking him around the suburban. He's, te- he's telling me to open the door. I'm not. And you're absolutely right. At that point, I didn't trust anyone in Mexico, not the police, not anyone. And uh, not until the uh, my 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 friend from the federal police department, the vet, the vet, the head of our vet unit, I told him specifically, whoever you're going to send, you have to give me his name and identification because I'm not going to open the door just to anyone. Well, 40 minutes later, the cavalry shows up, the military, the federal police, the helicopter landed right there on Highway 57. Here comes this police uh, police commander and he says uh so-and-so send me i asked for his credentials and he you know picked them through the window he says i'm we're not going to hurt you you're you're okay you're 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 going to be safe now and um i they finally pried the door open and i got my backpack and the phones i threw them in the backpack and we got out they put me in the helicopter they put Jaime in the helicopter and they flew us to the, the nearest local hospital there in San Luis Potosí. And that was probably the beginning of the nightmare of the aftermath because that's probably, probably when I was the most scared is I knew and I worked the border. I used to work at the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez. I knew the stories. I worked the investigations where the cartel members go and finish people off at hospitals. Wow. And, and, and this and was I not was, Mexico City. It's not Mexico City. We're about four and a half hours uh, north of Mexico city. 
Yeah, where the cartels and have a lot of control. They the just control that town, the whole town, that whole area, that whole Highway 57. They own that town at that time. And I, I thought for sure, that's it. They're, they're coming in this hospital and finishing me off. And I was just petrified to go in the hospital. Now, the hospital didn't know that we were Americans. They assumed that we were Mexican national, Mexican federal police. And I didn't give them my name. I didn't give anyone any information. They took Jaime into a, a, an operating room. They took me into another. And uh, people kept on nurses. You know, they, they did a great job. They, they this great medical attention. I'll give them that. Uh, and I was, I kept on, you know, talking on the phone with the federal police until, I don't know, maybe an hour later, uh, the SWAT team kind of guys from the federal police show up. This guy walks into the room and he says, you're Victor Avila? And he says, yes, well, I'm here on a direct order from Mexico City. You are safe now. The hospital has been surrounded. No one is coming in or out. And I breathed a little bit better there at that point. And that's when I first told the, uh, the nurses and the doctors, you know, my name is Victor Avila. I'm an American. And I get a little emotional, Dan, because um, I'm a Mexican-American and uh, I, I felt like such a foreigner in Mexico. Yep. Um, at that point, I, I, I wasn't from there. I wasn't, I wasn't a Mexican national. I was very proud of being an American. And uh, I, I yelled at them. I said, I'm a, I'm a U.S. special agent with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, and I, you know, I just kind of went off. And the hospital kind of at that point realized they had kind of an international incident in their hands. Like, oh, holy, okay. Uh, but they, I had great attention, great medical care. Um, the first American showed up about four hours later and uh, so glad to see the first American, which is a coworker of mine. And eventually they moved me up to a, a higher floor for security reasons. And then they started making plans to get me out of the country. One doctor had come in earlier and said, um, your partner in Spanish, he said, your partner has expired. And I kind of looked at him and said, what do you mean expired? I, I didn't like the way he, he said that. And I told him, listen, you please treat him with dignity and respect. And he says, we will. And uh, the other agent then went and oversaw. There was a big debate about autopsy and all that with Jaime. They were trying to make arrangements to get me out. Eventually, we got a DEA plane to fly into San Luis Potosí. And in the middle of the night, somewhere around 2, 3 in the morning, they flew me to Houston, to Ben Top Hospital, uh, where they where I arrived in the morning. Now, during this whole time, we're there's a lot of intelligence in the air, and my um, the, the agents in Mexico City get word that my apartment in Mexico City and my address is probably compromised. In the suburban, I have GPS and I had my home address on there, and Ooh. so. Uh, now my, my wife and kids had to get extracted. And so eventually they, they give my wife an hour to pack. She packs this bag. They take her and my, my two kids, I have a son and a daughter. They take them to a hotel in Mexico City, which is surrounded by Mexican law enforcement and U.S. law enforcement, all of them, DEA, Secret Service, FBI, U.S. Marshals, they're all there protecting them. And eventually they get on a CBP plane um, and, and get brought out and taken to the, the northern part of Toluca, which is another airport, not the, the Mexico City airport. And that was pretty dramatic for my, my family to, you know, get placed in suburbans covered with blankets in the back seats and, and driven out with, I don't know, close to maybe 50 to 75 law enforcement officers driving in a caravan to, to the airport to get them out. Eventually they did. And then from when I got released from Ben Taub in, in Houston, eventually we made contact in El Paso a day and a half later. Sure. So, so, um, you know, whereas someone who's typically shot three times, you know, you'd hope you can go to sleep and just recover. You had a whole day there where it was just one nightmare after another that you had to worry about. Um, you know, I'm just thinking here, we're probably going to have to do a part two of this show because there's so much going on. There's just the implications at the time. And then there's the long-term implications, the trial and everything. But I want to get back to why we believe this is somewhat like a Benghazi. Um, did you ever get straight two things? Number one, why they were so adamant that you travel like this, despite the known threats. And then B, 
what ultimately was this? What was this attack? Was it, you know, a random thing where they thought, hey, this is a juiced up suburban. It must be a rival cartel guy um, uh, and they wanted to attack or they knew you were American agents and they attacked anyway. OK, the, the first question is why why my supervisors, my ICE supervisors yeah. were so adamantly. I mean, they wanted that equipment that following day in the office. And um, the the only I've never gotten the straight answer or the official answer from anyone. By the way, I just recently got interviewed. I think about three weeks ago by Department of Homeland Security Internal Affairs, which we call OPR Office of Professional Responsibility. Eight years later, I've been interviewed. I have never been interviewed by anyone for an investigative internal investigation, which when an agent is involved in a car accident, there's this huge thing in the U.S. People get assigned to do this and that, and no one ever interviewed me. And one of the questions. Wait, 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 back up. This is new to me. You were never debriefed? Never. What? The only interview, the only interview I ever gave was one interview to the FBI agent that was conducting the criminal investigation. And I gave him the story that I just gave you right now about the shooting. So That's it wasn't it. like someone showed up in the hospital two days later in Houston and did, you know, you, you were debriefed. Nope. No one, no one. I mean, the protocol and the policy, uh, to, <laughs> to do at least that what was never done. And, and, the only and, reason it, I just want to say yeah, that, because because we're we're running out of time here, the reason why I juxtapose two seemingly disparate questions, but the reason why I'm so it's so bizarre why they wanted to do this, why they weren't so interested in what happened, is because wasn't it clear from the trial, you know, again fast forwarding several years later, that indeed they knew you were agents anyway, and they and that this Correct. was the first attack in Mexico on known American agents since they killed Kiki, the DA agent in 1985. Yes. It hadn't happened since then. And, uh, it, it was, uh, I always say this, that I never had, I thought that, uh, that a scumbag an evil criminal would corroborate my, my statement, but they did. The Zeta cartels that were extradited, the, the shooters were extradited and there was a trial. They testified that they heard me, that they knew I was an American. They said, Oh, yeah, we knew he was an American. We knew this was a diplomatic vehicle. We knew they were Americans. They had the opportunity to back off. There's been other instances in Mexico where, where U.S. agents are held at gunpoint. Yeah. And once they find out they're diplomats or U.S. agents, they, they're gone. They let them go. And that opportunity existed very clearly in our attack. And they ignored it, and they decided to shoot and kill us anyway. And um, And so... It's not a carjacking. Uh, I want to make that clear. They did not want that suburban. They destroyed that suburban. Um, they knew we were Americans for sure. So there's still some doubt as to, um, you know, I know they control that area. Um, were they tracking you? Out there. They definitely knew we were on their road. Definitely knew we were on there. Well, from the sure. stop at that subway? I think so. I think they knew. Uh, I think they, they had something to do with the, that guy that was the federal police officer that was surveying the, the highway 57, um, definitely they knew we were on that highway. It was a, it was a highly orchestrated enforcement action on their part. You know, these guys are highly trained. A lot of them are ex military uh, guys and, um, they knew how to handle their weapons and talking about weapons that we could talk this in part two and two of the weapons recovered are tied to a gun walking operation, just like fast and furious out of, uh, Texas. And, and I'm not, and that's not a speculation. That's a fact uh, that came out in the trial. I had, we have the, uh, the ballistics report. These guns were purchased uh, one in, in the Dallas area and one in the Houston area. So, and we're, and we're smuggled uh, under, under the, uh, the, the nose of ATF. ATF knew about these arms traffickers and, yep. and had the opportunity to arrest them. Never did. But as soon as our shooting happened, they went and picked them up immediately a week later and arrested them, now, uh, now, which is a little too late. He, here's – here's, uh, and again, there's so much to go over. We only have 10 minutes. We're going to have to do this again. Um, really a riveting story, and I appreciate you just giving it all over because for so many people, it's the first time hearing it. I know if I would uh, pull my – my colleagues who work in this business, they follow public policy, they follow this stuff. They probably never heard of this. 
Um, I did right. because I'm one of the few people, I mean, I do this for a living. I follow immigration and ICE and Border Patrol. But but I mean, you know, even then, I didn't know much about it at the time, especially. And one of the things that shocked me, I heard from several people that unlike during the Reagan administration, when that DA agent was killed, they sent down Delta Force and they shot up a bunch of these people. They, they ultimately did make arrests, but that initially the lead, DHS leader, leadership really didn't want to do much and that it was DEA because they have a lot of agents at risk more than anyone that really prodded them to even take some action. Is that true? Yes. Yes. I was even uh, at the DEA office in El Paso in their command center. And uh, the, the response was not what I think uh, should have been. Yes, they did a great job. And I always give uh, give kudos where, where, where it's deserved. And uh, the, the old-fashioned police work that some of the uh, uh, U.S. law enforcement agents did, along with the Mexican nationals, to arrest the shooters, hands down, they did a great job. But remember with Kiki Camarena, they shut down the border. They closed the border for hours. And, and there was this big, big operation and I think that initially came in afterwards with us after the shooting and they tried to kind of, uh, kind of, I don't know what the word is, mimic some of that law enforcement activity. You know, there were a lot of arrests and there was a lot of good police work done, but they killed a U.S. agent in the line of duty in Mexico. And I think it merited a bigger response than, yes. than what it was. And that's what bothers me in general. There's something very creepy in what you're telling me and we didn't even get get to most of what we wanted to talk about. Um, you know, again, how they had very little interest in finding out what's going on and doing things. And then, you know, we're going to maybe next time we'll talk about on a personal level, how you were kind of hung out to dry. You, rather than being treated yeah. as a hero surviving this incident, it was kind of like they just wanted to get rid of you. You couldn't even get your own retirement without pushing that. Um, but what's very unsettling is it almost seems like, reminds me of the movie, The Expendables. That our agents, whether it's military, whether it's you know uh, civilian, federal agents, are kind of expendables when they come into conflict with a certain policy that would, if they were forced to address it properly, they would have to take action. They would have to treat this as a military problem, that the cartels are terrorists, that they are harming our border beyond belief, beyond anything any terror group is doing around the world. They affect us more than anything. They control Mexico, but yet we still are obsessively protective of Mexican sovereignty, not just at the expense of our own sovereignty, but really at the expense of, of Mexico's own security because they don't control it anyway. And we, it seems like it's just a no-fly zone that we – if the cartels do something, we have to downplay it because if we don't pl downplay it, it would force a certain reaction that clearly our government is not ready to execute. And, and what's going on even since back then, uh, these cartels definitely qualify to be designated as foreign terrorist organizations. Um, the level of violence, of intimidation, of coercion – they have, uh, as you know, uh, you and you wrote about it. I mean, eighty percent of this country, of uh, the Mexican uh, is country, is controlled by the cartels in one fashion or another. Forget the border towns; the border towns are are completely theirs, and and they, they struggle with. Um, I don't know why we struggle with it, but the Mexican government can't control that. They haven't been able to go in there and and do a. a they try sometimes to send these federal. Uh, agents into the border towns and try to do some enforcement, but that's just when the murder rate gets out of control. Well, the murder, murder rates have been out of control in Mexico with over, I think, 40,000 dead. And I don't know what, what, what it's going to take. And I know what it can take from our side is that to designate them as FTOs, as foreign terrorist organizations, to give the tools to the U.S. government to take them down, just like we, just like we deal with ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban. This is the, the, the serious nature that the cartels are. And they're no longer just drug traffickers, by the way. They are involved in everything, um, human trafficking, human smuggling, weapons trafficking, child pornography, you name it, and they're involved in it. Um, SIA, special interest alien smuggling, that's very big right now. Yep. And so they, um, um, 
the, the designation is so important, and I think that, that the legislation that's, that is, you know, on the way in, uh, on the Hill in D.C., I supported 100 percent to hopefully give us some tools to really, really start combating them in a real fashion way, not just talk, but actual action. Did, 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 you, have, did you have any people, and I know, you know some of this you might not be able to talk about, but anyone in the agency, you know, you were, you were an HSI agent for a number of years. For those in the audience that don't know, Homeland Security Investigations is the investigative arm of ICE. Um, and did, how did they feel at the time? Because I just hear from current border agents that they're kind of scared of an incident like this, and not just in Mexico, but even on our side, where they could be behind the brush in very precarious situations at the Rio Grande River, and they're made sitting ducks, but then the rules of engagement are so terrible that you know a lot of people are like, oh, don't worry, Daniel, the cartels might be bad people and do bad stuff, but that's between their own you know, cartel warfare or the drug and human smuggling. They're not going to directly target an American agent, and that's usually been the rule, but in this case, they did, and you know, their fear is that, well, it's probably not in the best interest of a cartel boss to order the murder of a border agent or something, but you know, as, as structured as they are, when they get into pickles at a lower level down the chain of command in the field at the river, if they need to, they're going to shoot them and they don't have the tools to protect themselves. Were they very true? So were your they colleagues kind of scared they, of that? Brian, they killed Brian Terry uh, two months before us um, in, oh, that's in right. Arizona. I and, forgot about uh, that. Uh, and and they've been there have been other agents killed in, on the U.S. side, run over. Uh, numerous, numerous uh, in the line of duty uh, killings by Mexican nationals, drug cartels, um, and 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 you're, you're absolutely right. It, the the backup of what we say in law enforcement, I, I it failed for me. My agency, my government, which I was very loyal to, I was a hard I was proud to be a hardworking agent. It failed me, um, and the only thing I I heard over and over was like, well, we don't know what to do. Uh, we don't know what to do with you because since that never happened and it's not in written somewhere in some kind of policy manual, they really had no idea what to do with me. And rather than try to do the best for my family and I, which believe me, I never asked for any special treatment. I just wanted to just kind of be taken care of normally and be placed somewhere where I could continue on with my life. But my career ended that day. I didn't know it, but it did. They didn't want me back. And well, well, after what, a while, what, what do you mean? I still wanted to go back. Yeah, I'm saying they, you, they you, never want to be. You asked to be placed somewhere in DHS or ICE. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so initially I, I I got sent to DC to be uh, uh, to recuperate physically, and then I, I couldn't be there anymore. And I asked them to send me send me out, please. And they sent me to Madrid, and there there's that's where the whole nightmare starts. I was supposed to be there for three years, and I got kicked out after 19 months. Literally, I asked to leave. I was issued a three R letter which is either you resign, you retire, or relocate. And that's a terrible thing to receive as an agent. I never did anything uh, to deserve that whoa, kind of letter. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know about this part. Wait a minute. Um, slow down there. You were uh, – did that, that have something to do with what hap- something that happened in Madrid or just – No. That I, I, to this day, I don't know – do not know the reason why I was curtailed from and, Madrid. So and, and you, you were never offered like um, – and I don't know the word for it, but uh, – you know, in the military, you could have someone who is um, injured, so you know they get ret- a certain retirement package. You were never offered that. No, 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 no. It, no. Is there? I'm, I, uh, I'm drawing a blank here. Is there the an, an equivalent of like a Purple Heart that you have in the military for a federal agent that you know is injured in the line of duty? Um, accommodation. I've been by a lot of a lot of people, uh, never directly by my agency. I've been I've been uh, the ICE foundation which is a foundation that was created back then you know they they acknowledged uh, they acknowledged that and the federal law enforcement officer association has been great all these other uh, associations uh law enforcement associations have been great with me never never directly from my agency i still can't get the reimbursement of all the expenses that we had to this day eight years later medical uh, you know my family and i almost went into bankruptcy because of what happened and uh, ICE has never reimbursed all the expenses d- directly related to the shooting. And, um, and sure enough, on, on my 40th birthday in 2012, 
the director of investigations, came to my wife and I. We were in Puerto Rico on a uh, for an award. He came up right before I received the, the award, and he informed my wife and I that we had to leave Madrid, that the U.S. ambassador was asking for us to leave. And we were shocked. We were shocked. And we so go back you to were Madrid. still doing HSI work there? Yes, I was working at the U.S. Uh, at the ICE office and uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. Yes, I went back to work five months after the shooting. I, we couldn't stand to be in D.C. anymore. We needed to get out. It was very difficult for my kids, and and we needed to be away. And 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 that was a good thing. So the placement in Madrid was great. We were kind of you know trying to recover physically, emotionally. Um, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD. All these other stuff was going on. So it was great to be over there and deal with that. And um, on my 40th birthday, when we we flew to uh, Puerto Rico, and I was informed of that, as soon as we got back to Madrid, I go up to the ambassador's office. He wasn't there. The the deputy chief of mission was there. And I asked him, I said, why are we getting kicked out? And he he tells me, I don't know what you're talking about, Victor, but the ambassador doesn't care if you're here or there or he doesn't even know that you're here. It's not us. Believe me, it's not the U.S. ambassador. It's not this office that wants you out. And so we were very puzzled and I fought, I fought that. Uh, but eventually I lost that battle and they asked me, you got to pick a city in the U S to come to. And, you know, I, I picked San Antonio and they denied San Antonio. I picked Austin. Uh, I'm from Texas. They, they denied that. Um, well, I wasn't going to go to LA. I wasn't going to go to New York. I ended up being between Tampa and Denver and we ended up in Denver and I never actually went to work in Denver. I was on the clock, but there's other stuff. I, you know, my, my email address had been erased. My law enforcement call sign, uh, every law enforcement agent or officer has a call sign assigned to him. That had been erased. Uh, they took my gun. They took my car. They wanted to take my badge and credentials, and I didn't give them that. I was never going to give them that. And so I was at home in Denver uh, on the clock, quote unquote, but not going to the office in this very awkward limbo state. And I didn't know what to do until I, I, I'm the one that started looking into retirement. I said, well, I'm just going to, they don't want me back, obviously. And now I don't want to be there. When I did walk in the office, it was a very, very difficult situation to be in there and handle. And um, eventually uh, I sought the the help of of a congressman and um, I tried to get an early retirement and they denied that. And so eventually I had to seek the medical retirement route. And that's what was issued back in May of 2015. So there was never any recognition of like reverence, man, this is the survivor of, you know, agent, you know, down on, on, in, in Mexico attacked by the cartels. It's literally no. as if you are just an expendable. Um, there, there's too many unsettling questions that this is not just a, a story in and of itself from eight years ago. But I want to go through the trial. I want to go through a little bit more with you know some lawsuits to the extent you could talk about that, and then just yeah. the political implications of why what you're looking to do now and then tie that back into the policies. I mean, what you're living now is, is more relevant now than then because the situation both on, on both sides of the border is much worse than it was in 2011. Um, so I'm going to do what I've never done before, which is um, have you back again, either, either tomorrow or, or Thursday or Friday to do a part two and I'm going to ask our listeners, <clears throat> go go shoot me an email. Email me at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com or tweet me at armconservative. Uh, let me know what what you want me to ask, Victor, um, you know, and, and, and what you think is important. We're going to, you know, do this a part two. You could also follow Victor at at uh, VIC Survivor 11 on Twitter at VIC Survivor 11. Um, man, a lot to go on, but we're going to make this a to be continued. Thanks so much, Victor, for giving your riveting story. Um, I, I'm just proud to at least be able to have some sort of a platform to get, get this out. I know you've been on some others. You were on Tucker Carlson recently. Um, and, and, and this, this is just really unsettling. It's even more unsettling than we, when we spoke privately. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's and, and, there, and more detail will come out as, as we as we speak again. But uh, I'm very glad to share 
all of it with you and your listeners. And, and I, again, I thank you. Thank you, Dan, for, for the opportunity to get the word out. And uh, I always tell people as part of, uh, of being a survivor, there was a lot of identity issues as to why I survived. And my faith is, is, is big. I believe oh, sure. God kept me here for a reason. And one is probably just to be with my family. But another is also uh, in memory of Jaime Zapata and to make sure and maybe I'm the advocate, maybe I'm the voice of, of, of to, to express and to say not just the story, but what comes attached to the story. And we're talking about border security and everything else that we could get into next time. It, it, exactly. And this is what rips my heart out literally as we're talking. And I got to jump to do an interview. Um, the House Democrats are debating a mass amnesty bill uh, just full of innuendo, full of identity politics because there's politically correct victims and those are illegal immigrants in their mind. But here a guy like Jaime Zapata doesn't matter to them, never heard of him. So look, this show and our next one will be dedicated to the memory of Jaime Zapata. Thanks so much, Victor, for joining us to be continued. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. Send me your comments, concerns, and questions. We'll be back same time, same place tomorrow. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience. 